325 AD, Council of Nicaea. We can turn it down. We're, we're pretty close. Uh, Council of Nicaea, uh, the, the false teacher there was Arius, who had taught that there was a time when the sun was not. In other words, that the sun was not eternal. And uh, this was the first ecumenical council. Ecumenical meaning uh, all, all the church, east and west, comes together. Uh, it was at the time uh, when Constantine was emperor. And uh, yeah, he called it partially to keep peace in the kingdom. But ultimately, you have uh, 220 bishops there agreeing that the scriptures do not teach that uh, the sun is, uh, is a creation. And uh, Arians, okay, or Arianism, uh, the, the false teaching that was condemned at 325, is condemned by the Council of Nicaea, uh, uh, continues to this day with uh, teachings like uh, that, that which flow from the Watchtower, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, or the Mormons, uh, essentially denying the divinity of Christ. So the divinity of Christ was defended in 325. A little later, you have uh, 381 at Constantinople, oops, council, my goodness, they're practicing the active shooter, Constantinople, you had somebody else who had defended orthodoxy over and against Arius at the Council of Nicaea. Now, the main champion who did that was a man named Athanasius. He's the one who stood up for the divinity of Christ. But there was also others, one of whom was named Apollinarius. And Apollinarius, if you remember, he came up with a different idea of how do we understand the Son being both human and divine? And we talked about why this is so important. This isn't isn't mere abstract stuff. Uh, It does nobody any good for us to simply say, well, I don't know. I can't figure it out. That's for all those theologians. I just know I trust Jesus. Why is that wrong? Yeah, who and who is Jesus? Who pretell, who pretell is Jesus? Who is he? Is he only a man? Is he, is he only God and not really a man? Who, who are we talking about here? That's the, that's the question. And so with... Uh, Apollinarius, what he thought was, he came up with this idea, he was a brilliant uh, bishop, leader in the church, and he came up with the idea that uh, when the Word became flesh, the Word, that is, the eternal Son, who has existed from all eternity past with the Father, is fully God like the Father, took up residence within a human body, and that is how we have the Christ. The problem with that, of course, is that being human consists of two parts. Not just having a body, but also having a soul. Your body and soul, or body and spirit. Spirit, soul, same thing. Your soul, or your spirit, is who you are apart from your body, your conscious state of being. And what, uh, what Apollinarius was teaching was that the Christ essentially was not human, not fully human. And that's important for us to, uh, to understand why that is false teaching. If Christ wasn't human, what does that mean for us? Yeah, we're hellbound. Why? Why? Right. 
as the catechism says, the same human nature which is sinned against God must make satisfaction for sins. So he has to be body and soul. And as uh, the Cappadocian fathers who had uh, defended uh, orthodoxy at the Council of uh, Constantinople argued, that which the son did not assume, he cannot redeem. So he, in order to redeem us, he has to be body and soul. Yeah, Dexter. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, all over Scripture. Yeah, beginning at the, at the very beginning that God breathed into Adam and gave him life. And then that's used everywhere throughout Scripture. Uh, you know, the, the Ruach, the Spirit, is interchangeable, with, again, with soul. But, uh, I mean, we could, we could go on. In fact, I think I have a list here of some uh, relevant passages concerning body and soul. Uh, yeah, do, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, 28. And the word soul there is, uh, is summa. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. 1 Corinthians 5, 3, for though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. Um, yeah, soul and spirit interchangeable. Romans 8, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, and the unmarried and or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Ephesians 2, 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Mind, again, it's another word for spirit, for soul. Uh, and we're by nature children of wrath. You know, when we're told to lo- love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, it's three ways of saying the same thing, essentially. Your immaterial conscious state of being. At death, that's what happens. You're looking at a, a lifeless body because soul has departed. And then as 1, Corinthians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, when Jesus returns, he brings with those, those who slept, who sleep in him, the souls that have departed. As Philippians 1 says, to go to be with him. And then at the return, body and soul uh, come back together, 1 Corinthians 15. So yeah, you are body and soul. Everybody is. And at death, that separates. At the resurrection, it comes back together. Also comes back together for those who will be suffering in hell. They will suffer in body and soul, not in a glorified body. So good question. But yeah, everywhere in Scripture, that's what it says. Uh, So Apollinaria said that basically Jesus did not have a real human soul. And so that is refuted at uh, the Council of Constantinople. Uh, Constantinople is uh, modern-day Istanbul, uh, was the largest Christian church there, the Hagia Sophia, and was overtaken, uh, overrun by Islam, and, um, and has been Istanbul ever since. Yes? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a long history and story behind each, count, each one of these councils being called. The short end of it is, uh, and there, some of them are fascinating, but the short end of it is you have a disruption within the church 
So in the case of Arius, for example, he's going around teaching these things, and there's years building up of people following his teaching that Jesus is not God. He's only a man. And he even had a song. Uh, there was when he was not, and people would sing it. He, and he was very popular, uh, especially with women. Uh, they, he, was, he, he was known to be a good preacher. People loved him. So it spreads, and then you have theologians and other pastors saying, wait a minute, this isn't orthodox. And so there's disruption. And so oftentimes you have local synods, local meetings, and it leads up to, all right, we need to call all of the leaders of all the churches everywhere together, east and west. No, these are ecumenical councils. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, when we mean by ecumenicals, we mean that it's every, the whole church as it exists. Yeah. And there hasn't been an ecumenical council. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the fact that you have a Roman Empire at the time, and Constantinople is the new Rome at that period, during, at least during the period of, of Constantine, because he moved the, the capital over, which is how, incidentally, the papacy rose to power, because people began to look at the Bishop of Rome as having more political clout than he should have had. And uh, while the capital is over in Constantinople, the papacy in Rome becomes more powerful. That's why you see it escalate over there. But anyway, uh, uh, yeah, you basically have uh, a controversy within the church, and then you have uh, local meetings that ultimately lead up to a major council being called for East and West. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, what's interesting, I mean, it's a really interesting uh, question, John, because what you do find with the ancient ecumenical councils is there was no pope calling it. There was no pope calling these councils. The pope didn't have that kind. Of, there was no pope yet. There was no power of the bishop of Rome to that extent to be able to say, ecumenical council right now. And then after the split in 1054 of East and West, the, you know, the East officially never has recognized the bishop of Rome as having more power over them, which is really helpful for us to know, you know when we see the pope coming and you hear these things, you hear the Catholic Church saying things like six billion people or six million people in the world, or six, how many, one billion members is I think what they say in the world, uh, and we're the biggest church. The East is saying, we never recognized you guys, you know, not to, the, to have that kind of power. The Pope wasn't calling these, these councils. They were, they were uh, it was much more grassroots in that sense. And bishops were local pastors and elders at, at each church. So, well, it, you have the church essentially calling it. I mean, the first one uh, is, is supported by uh, the, uh, the Emperor Constantine. But, uh, but there is no pope saying, you all meet here now. Just like when we have a synod. You know, Dr. Godfrey doesn't call it. Yeah. The church, the leaders. Yeah. Right, right. That's how letters were written, right? Yeah. I mean, how did, how did Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, how did that get to all the churches? Is every church had it. So it circulates. Yeah. But essentially, you have the leaders in the church, the elders and the ministers, uh, agreeing to come together in an ecumenical council. There's many times, and as you look in history, like I said, there's interesting stories politically how they get called. 
But theologically, we always have to understand that it's the leaders in the church, just like today when we have a synod. There's no boss man calling us. You know, when we go to classes, it's not the governor of California calling us. Um, you know, thank God. Uh, it's, it's not the, uh, uh, any, any one leader. It's the church coming together. So hold on, we got it. We need to move along here as we get to where we're where we're at, and uh, then I'll we'll, I'll open it for some questions. So this is what we've covered so far. This is denying the de- the deity of Christ. This is denying the humanity of Christ. Okay. So we know that Christ is both human and divine. Now the church has struggled to understand how that works out exactly. How does that work out? And as we talked about last week, um, as we think about the two natures of Christ, uh, we have to remember that he is one person. If I can draw a picture here, and this is really dangerous because you never want to make analogies, right? But being that we're finite. So Christ is both human and he's divine. Right, it's already it's already a bad analogy because how can you have divinity with borders, which you can't. The, the, the divinity exceeds the bounds of the humanity, as we confess in the Belgian. But just for the sake of our finite minds, this is the one person of Christ. Okay, he has two natures. Now. Uh, Understanding how those two natures relate has been a matter of some uh, debate and controversy uh, throughout the, the Christian church. And uh, I want to give you a, uh, something, to, a handout. Um, Levi, would you help me out? On my desk, um, there is a stack of uh, photocopied uh, papers, and it says uh, definition of Chalcedon on there. Can you go grab those? And then we can just hand those out. Maybe, uh, Andrew, can you help them? Maybe pass those out. Um, uh, so how do we understand the two natures together? Uh, you have someone who comes along, Nestorius, uh, another good pastor, brilliant. Uh, he's from a particular school of theology, the Antiochian school that uh, emphasized the oneness of God. And uh, he had a problem with people calling Mary the mother of God. Theotokos is the word in Greek. And so can we say that? This is what we talked about last week. We sing that hymn, right? Uh, And can it be that I should gain, right? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, hast died for me? Now, can God die? Well, then why are you singing that song? Why are you singing that song if God can't die? Yes, I'm being tough. Because Jesus died. And who is Jesus, Angela? That's it. That's it. So the question would be, yeah, go ahead and we pass those out. The question is, should we say that Jesus died? This is what Nestorius, Nestorius is our third guy. Notorious Nestorius. In 4, 
31 at the council of Ephesus that he struggled with. He said, don't say Mary, the mother of God, because God can't be born. You know, and he's going back to the first ecumenical council thinking, look, we got this straightened out with Arius who said the only begotten son as if he came into being at one time. And uh, don't say Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Okay, well, he is, she is the mother of Jesus, but who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is God. Jesus, whatever we can say about one nature, we can affirm about the whole person. And there's a fancy word for that. It, it's called the, the communicatio idiomatum. Totally impress your friends at a cocktail party, right? What do you think about the communicatio idiomatum? Uh, but all that means is, uh, it means that what we can affirm about one nature, we can affirm about the whole person. So, Jesus was born. Jesus is also God because the human nature cannot be separated from the divine nature. So we can say, Mary, the mother of God. Jesus died. Divinity cannot die. But we can say God died because the human nature cannot be separated from the divine nature. It's the same thing as saying this. I mean, have you ever said something like this to your kids? Honey, Jesus is with us. I mean, come on, how many parents have said that? I've said that. Is, that. is that wrong to say that? Some of you are thinking, well, I hope not I've said it, but I have a feeling that you're going to tell me it's wrong. Uh, no, it's not wrong. But now think about it for a second. Is Jesus there physically? Have you ever seen Jesus? No. And yet we say Jesus is with us. Why? Because he's with us in his divinity, not in his humanity. Because you're using the communicatio idiomatum when you say, honey, Jesus is with you when you're helping your child who's afraid at night. You're using the communicatio idiomatum. What you affirm of one nature, you're affirming of the whole person. You don't say, well, honey, God the Son is with us in his divinity, but Jesus in his humanity is at the right hand of the Father, and he can only be in one place at one time. He's not omnipresent. But in his divinity, he's omnipresent. That doesn't, at that point, your child's not comforted, right? Uh, you say, Jesus is with us. Or how about this? Jesus dwells in my heart. I remember hearing a little kid say, get him out of there. I don't want him in my heart. You know? uh, he's not in our heart by his humanity, obviously. He's dwelling with us by means of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But his divinity is omnipresent. You're using the communicatio idiomatum from divinity to humanity. You can use the same thing from humanity to divinity when you say God died. You're not saying that divinity stopped to exist, which is impossible. Uh, And so this is important for us to understand. It's very important. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism even touches on this a little bit. If you look in the back of the Heidelberg Catechism, in the back of the Psalter hymnal, that is, where the Heidelberg Catechism is, uh, you'll see where it's dealing with the Apostles' Creed and the section on the Ascension. Uh, Where are we? Right here. Lord's Day, okay, Lord's Day 18. If you go to page 24 in the back of the Psalter hymnal, 
Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 18, is dealing with the Apostles' Creed. What do you mean by saying he ascended into heaven? Okay, that he really went. That Christ, while his disciples watched, was lifted up from the earth into heaven and will be there for our good until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. That's where his humanity is right now. His humanity can only be in one place at one time because he's really human. And his humanity is at the right hand of the Father. Somewhere in this cosmos. That's freaky, isn't it? But it's true. And he will, just as the, the apostles saw him go up, he will come back down in his humanity. But isn't Christ with us, question 47, until the end of the world as he promised us? Answer, Christ is true man and true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth. But in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is not absent from us for a moment. You see, but it's the whole Christ. Question 48. If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? Answer, certainly not. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity he has taken on, but at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. His divinity and his humanity could never be separated. From the moment of the Holy Spirit's conception of Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The two natures cannot be separated. The divinity, the divine nature exceeds the bounds of the human nature, but cannot be separated from the human nature. Not even when the human nature was separated, body and soul, when he died on the cross. Even the body in the tomb is united to the divinity. Question 49, how, because we might think, okay, this is all fascinating. What difference does it make? Verse 49, how does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? First, he pleads our cause in heaven in the presence of his Father. This is what Hebrews talks about. He's gone behind the curtain, and he is there for us. He is the first fruits. He's the first crop. He's the only one with a glorified body, the only one. And because he is glorified, all the rest of the, the, the harvest will be glorified as well. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We're, we all who have died in Christ are awaiting their glorified bodies, but he is truly human in a glorified body right now at the right hand of the Father, pleading our cause. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven, a guarantee that Christ, our head, will take us, his members, to himself in heaven. Yeah, that first fruits. Third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a, as a further guarantee by the Spirit's power, we make the goal of our lives not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. So he is at the right hand of God <clears throat> in his humanity, but he is absent from earth. But the two cannot be separated. What Nestorius did in, when he lived was... Uh, was say that the two were separated to the point of it being two different persons. Then, as often happens, only, you know, only a few years later, 
451, another council. There was the opposite extreme. Nestorius said, you can't say Mary, mother of God. He separated the two natures to the point where you have two persons. Uh, Eutyches, good grief, I can even read that. Right? Eutyches. Eutyches did the opposite. He said that, well, the, the two natures, divine and human, are so united that it, it essentially becomes one nature. So that wherever the divinity is, the humanity is also. And so that we can say Jesus, even in his humanity, is omnipresent because uh, it's become one nature. This was a, uh, that was a view that was condemned at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And now you have um, the hand. Is there an extra handout? You have the, uh, do you guys have one? Uh, now you have this definition of Chalcedon. Let's read this together. This is beautiful. The Synod of Chalcedon, 451, met to resolve the monophysite controversy. Monophysite is just another term for um, what Eutyches believed. A heresy saying Christ had one nature, in which the Eutychians refused to confess the existence of two natures in Christ. It summarizes the church's teaching on the natures of Christ in negative terms. The council asked, In what sense was Jesus truly man, and how was he both God and man? This is an important question for us. We know he's God. Only God can bear the wrath of God, but he has to be man because he has to pay for man's sins. How can he be both? Many answers had been given. Apollinarianism destroyed Christ's true manhood by saying he did not have a rational soul, just a body. Nestorianism destroyed the unity of his person by radically separating his divine nature from his human nature and making two Christs. That's why we can sing um, that thou, my God, hast died for me. We recognize there's not two different Christs. He's both man and God. Eutychianism destroyed the distinction of the two natures by teaching that Christ's human nature was absorbed into his divine nature. In the Belgic Confession of Faith, Article 9, the Reformed churches confess that we do willingly receive the three creeds, namely the apostles of Nicaea and of Athanasius. Likewise, that which conformable thereunto is agreed upon by the ancient fathers. The definition of Chalcedon is appended to this book of creeds and confessions as it explains who is, the, who is the Christ of the three great ecumenical creeds. So the fathers all agreed on this. Again, everybody in the church, the church was still small enough that you had these massive ecumenical councils that you could have representation from all the churches that uh, they were still meeting together as one. So here it is. This is a great creed. Let's, let's read it here. We then... Following the Holy Father, let's read it together, that's good. We then, following the Holy Fathers, 
all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in deity and also in humanity, truly God and truly man. So hold on right there. Where do we get that language from? Truly God, truly man. Nicaea, see, they're, they're building upon the past. Yeah, let's continue to go. Of a rational soul and body. Stop. What's, what's that referring to? Constantinople, because Apollinarius said he didn't have a rational soul. You see how that, what they're doing? This is, this is in 451. They're not ignorant of the past. They're drawing upon the language of Nicaea and drawing upon the language of Constantinople because they, they were being wise. Sorry? Well, I was going to make a great joke, but I'll, for the sake of every man here, we will, I'll spare that joke. Um, but it was a zinger. Don't you hate that? It's like an epiphany. It's just so funny. But it'll get you and me into trouble, Bob. Um, rational soul, what he's talking about ultimately is that it's a conscious state of being. It's not just, it's not a gassy bubble. It's not some kind of um, material substance, but rather your immaterial uh, conscious state. It's, it's, it's what you as Bob Hannibal are apart from your body. And your body is Bob Hannibal apart from your soul. That's, why, again, why death is so sad, because the rationality of that person, the animation of that person has left. So, drawing upon the language of, and Apollinarius said he had an irrational soul. Uh, okay, consubstantial with the Father. In other words, con means with, the same substance with the Father. The Son has the same, is of the same uh, uh, essence as the Father concerning his divine nature and look at consubstantial with us <clears throat> concerning his human nature in all things like unto us but without sin begotten before all ages of the Father concerning his divine nature and in these latter days for us and for our salvation born of the Virgin Mary the mother of God concerning his human nature one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures. Now notice these four adverbs here. These are, you can see how the creeds, these are, these are the product of many uh, uh, experts on the Bible who are churchmen coming together, led by the Spirit of God, and thinking through the issue that was before them that is false, and using very deliberate and careful language. Look at these four adverbs. The two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. That is who Christ is. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union. In other words, one person, two natures, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concerning and concurring in one person in subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. This is the Christian faith. If you deny this, or you deny Nicaea, or you deny the Apostles' Creed, you cannot call yourself a Christian. Period. It's not a matter of, but God knows my heart. That should never comfort us. That should only concern us. And God has given a revealed faith in his word. And we say, well, yeah, I believe the Bible. So did the fathers. The question is, what does the Bible say? And the, the, the false teachings that come up today have come up in the past, and the church has responded to them. And if we don't know the creeds, that all of the historic churches confess, and even to this day, all parts of Christianity confess these creeds, we'll be destined to repeat the same errors. We will reinvent the wheel. And as Dr. Godfrey says, it, it rarely comes out round. And so, uh, so this is helpful for us to, to, uh, to think through. Okay, so next week what I'm going to do is we're going to go through uh, a few fun things on the Trinity and the two natures of Christ. I'm going to have some quotes from pop culture, from, uh, from actors, from people that are around today who wield all the power in society. And uh, just read an, an interview with a famous actor uh, that I really enjoy and admire his work. says he's a Christian, and then you listen to what he confesses. Clearly not a Christian. But in our society, how are we able to be discerning of these things? This is what helps us, guys. This stuff. To be equipped and this is really part of what it means to put on the whole armor of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the ministry of your word, and we pray that we would continue to be equipped by it. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, your Son, eternal, consubstantial with you from all eternity past, and the one who took on our own likeness in real body and real soul in order to redeem us, in order to do that which the first Adam failed to do and which we ourselves could not do. We thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and we look forward to his return and seeing him in the flesh, O Lord. And we praise him for he deserves all glory with you and the Holy Spirit. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to help us know better his person and his work, all to your praise and glory. For we ask this in his name. Amen.